0: CHAPTER TWO OF HOME LIFE IN COLONIAL DAYS BY ALICE MORSE EARL. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. THE LIGHT OF OTHER DAYS The first and most natural way of lighting the houses of the American colonists, both in North and South, was by the pine-knots of the fat pitch pine which of course were found everywhere in the greatest plenty in the forests governor john winthrop the younger in his communication to the english royal society in sixteen sixty two said this candle-wood was much used for domestic illumination in virginia new york and new england it was doubtless gathered everywhere in new settlements as it has been in pioneer homes till our own day in maine new hampshire and vermont it was used till this century in the southern states the pine knots are still burned in humble households for lighting purposes and a very good light they furnish the historian Wood wrote in sixteen forty two in his New England's Prospect, quote, one of these pines is gotten the candlewood that is much spoke of, which may serve as a shift among poor folks, but I cannot commend it for singular good because it droppeth a pitchy kind of substance where it stands that pitchy kind of substance was tar which was one of the most valuable trade products of the colonists so much tar was made by burning the pines on the banks of the connecticut that as early as sixteen fifty The towns had to prohibit the using of candlewood for tar-making if gathered within six miles of the Connecticut River, though it could be gathered by families for illumination and fuel. Rev. Mr. Higginson, writing in 1633, said of these pine knots, they are such candles as the indians commonly use having no other and they are nothing else but the wood of the pine tree cloven in two little slices something thin which are so full of the moisture of turpentine and pitch that they burn as clear as a torch unquote. to avoid having smoke in the room and on account of the pitchy droppings the candle wood was usually burned in a corner of the fireplace on a flat stone the knots were sometimes called pine torches one old massachusetts minister boasted at the end of his life that every sermon of the hundreds he had written had been copied by the light of these torches reverend mr newman of rehoboth is said to have compiled his vast concordance of the bible wholly by the dancing light of this candlewood lighting was an important item of expense in any household of so small an income as that of a puritan minister and the single candle was often frugally extinguished during the long family prayers each evening every family laid in a good supply of this light wood for winter use and it was said that a prudent new england farmer would as soon start the winter without hay in his barn as without candle wood in his woodshed. Mr. Higginson wrote in sixteen thirty though New England has no tallow to make candles of yet by abundance of fish thereof it can afford oil for lamps. Close quote. This oil was apparently wholly neglected though there were few or no domestic animals to furnish tallow but when cattle increased every ounce of tallow was saved as a precious and useful treasure and as they became plentiful it was one of the household riches of new england which was of value to our own day when governor winthrop arrived in massachusetts he promptly wrote over to his wife to bring candles with her from england when she came and in 1634 he sent over for a large quantity of wicks and tallow candles cost four pence apiece which made them costly luxuries for thrifty colonists wicks were made of loosely spun hemp or tau or of cotton, from milkweed, which grows so plentiful in our fields and roads today, the children gathered in late summer the silver silk down, which was spun grossly into candle wick. Sometimes the wicks were dipped with saltpetre. Thomas Tusser wrote in England in the sixteenth century, in his directions to housewives quote, wife make thine own candle spare penny to handle provide for thy tallow if frost cometh in and make thine own candle ere winter begin Unquote. every thrifty housewife in america saved her penny as in england The making of the winter's stock of candles was the special autumnal household duty, and a hard one, too, for the great kettles were tiresome and heavy to handle. An early hour found the work well under way. A good fire was started in the kitchen fireplace under two vast kettles, each two feet, perhaps in diameter, which were hung on trammels from the lug pole or crane and half filled with boiling water and melted tallow which had had two scaldings and skimmings. At the end of the kitchen or in an adjoining and cooler room, sometimes in the lean-to, two long poles were laid from chair to chair or stool to stool, Across these poles were placed at regular intervals, like the rounds of a ladder, small sticks about fifteen or eighteen inches long, called candle rods. These poles and rods were kept from year to year, either in the garret or up on the kitchen beams. To each candle rod was attached about six or eight carefully straightened candle wicks the wicking was twisted strongly one way then doubled then the loop was slipped over the candle rod when the two ends of course twisted the other way around each other making a firm wick a rod with its row of wicks was dipped in the melted tallow in the pot and returned to its place across the poles each row was thus dipped in regular turn each had time to cool and harden between the dips and thus grew steadily in size if allowed to cool fast they of course grew quickly but were brittle and often cracked hence a good worker dipped slowly but if the room was fairly cool could make two hundred candles for a day's work Some could dip two rods at a time. The tallow was constantly replenished as the heavy kettles were used alternately to keep the tallow constantly melted and were swung off and on the fire. Boards or sheets of paper were placed under the rods to protect the snowy scoured floors. Candles were also run in moles which were groups of metal cylinders usually made of tin or pewter itinerant candle makers went from house to house taking charge of candle making in the household and carrying large candle molds with them one of the larger size making two dozen candles is here shown but its companion the smaller mold making six candles is such as were more commonly seen each wick was attached to a wire or nail placed across the open top of the cylinder and hung down in the center of each individual mold the melted tallow was poured in carefully around the wicks wax candles also were made they were often shaped by hand by pressing bits of heated wax around a wick farmers kept hives of bees as much for the wax as for the honey which was a much demand for sweetening when loaves of sugar were so high-priced deer suet moose fat bears grease all were saved in frontier settlements and carefully tried into tallow for candles every particle of grease rescued from pot liquor or fat from meat was utilized for candle making rush lights were made by stripping part of the outer bark from common rushes thus leaving the pith bare then dipping them in tallow or grease and letting them harden the precious candles thus tediously made were taken good care of they were carefully packed in candle boxes with compartments were covered over and set in a dark closet where they would not discolor and turn yellow a metal candle box hung on the edge of the kitchen mantel shelf always held two or three candles to replenish those which burned out in the candlesticks. A natural and apparently inexhaustible material for candles was found in all the colonies in the waxy berries of the bayberry bush, which still grows in large quantities on our coasts. In the year 1748 a swedish naturalist professor kalm came to america and he wrote an account of the bayberry wax which i will quote in full there is a plant here from the berries of which they make a kind of wax or tallow and for that reason the swedes call it the tallow shrub the english call the same tree THE CANDLEBERRY TREE, OR BAYBERRY BUSH. IT GROWS ABUNDANTLY IN A WET SOIL AND SEEMS TO THRIVE PARTICULARLY WELL IN THE NEIGHBORHOOD OF THE SEA. THE BERRIES LOOK AS IF flour HAD BEEN STREWN ON THEM. THEY ARE GATHERED IN LATE AUTUMN, BEING RIPE ABOUT THAT TIME, AND ARE THROWN INTO A KETTLE OR POT FULL OF BOILING WATER. BY THIS MEANS THEIR FAT MELTS OUT floats at the top of the water and may be skimmed off into a vessel with the skimming they go on till there is no tallow left the tallow as soon as it is congealed looks like common tallow or wax but has a dirty green color by being melted over and refined it acquires a fine and transparent green colour this tallow is dearer than common tallow but cheaper than wax candles of this do not easily bend nor melt in summer as common candles do they burn better and slower nor do they cause any smoke but yield rather an agreeable smell when they are extinguished in carolina they not only make candles out of the wax of the berries but likewise sealing wax Close quote. "beverly the historian of virginia wrote of the smell of burning bayberry tallow quote, "if an accident puts a candle out it yields a pleasant fragrance to all that are in the room "'insomuch the nice people often put them out on purpose "'to have the incense of the expiring snuff.'" Bayberry wax was not only a useful home product, but an article of traffic till this century, and was constantly advertised in the newspapers. In 1712, in a letter written to John Winthrop, F.R.S., I find, I am now to beg one favour of you, that you secure for me all the bayberry wax you can possibly put your hands on. You must take a care they do not put too much tallow among it, being a custom and cheat they have got." Bayberries were of enough importance to have some laws made about them everywhere on long island grew the stunted bushes and everywhere they were valued the town of brookhaven in sixteen eighty seven forbade the gathering of the berries before september fifteenth under penalty of fifteen shillings fine THE PUNGENT AND UNIQUE scent OF BAYBERRY, EQUALLY STRONG IN LEAF AND BERRY, IS TO ME ONE OF THE ELEMENTS OF THE PURITY AND SWEETNESS OF THE AIR OF OUR NEW ENGLAND COAST-FIELDS IN AUTUMN. IT GROWS EVERYWHERE, GREEN AND CHEERFUL, IN SUN-WITHERED SHORE PASTURES, IN POOR BITS OF EARTH ON OUR ROCKY COAST, WHERE IT HAS FEW FELLOW FIELD-TENANTS TO CROWD THE GROUND. It is said that the highest efforts of memory are stimulated through our sense of smell by the association of ideas and scents that of bayberry whenever i pass it seems to awaken in me an hereditary memory to recall a life of two centuries ago i recalled the autumns of trial and of promise in our early history and the bayberry fields are peopled with children in puritan garb industriously gathering the tiny waxen fruit equally full of sentiment is the scent of my burning bayberry candles which were made last autumn in an old colony town the history of whale fishing in new england is the history of one of the most fascinating commercial industries the world has ever known it is a story with every element of intense interest showing infinite romance adventure skill courage and fortitude it brought vast wealth to the communities that carried on the fishing and great independence and comfort to the families of the whalers to the whalemen themselves it brought incredible hardships and dangers yet they loved the life with a love which is strange to view and hard to understand in the oil made from these royal fish the colonists found a vast and cheap supply for their metal and glass lamps while the toothed whales had stored in their blunt heads a valuable material which was at once used for making candles it is termed in the most ancient reference i found to it in the new england records sperma cote. it was asserted that one of these spermaceti candles gave out more light than three tallow candles and had four times as big a flame soon their manufacture and sale amounted to large numbers and materially improved domestic illumination All candles, whatever their material, were carefully used by the economical colonists to the last bit by a little wire frame of pins and rings called a save-all. Candlesticks of various metals and shapes were found in every house, and often sconces, which were also called candle arms or prongs candle beams were rude chandeliers a metal or wooden hoop with candle holders snuffers were always seen with which to trim the candles and snuffer trays these were sometimes exceedingly richly ornamented and were often of silver extinguishers often accompanied the snuffers though lamps occasionally appear on early inventories and lists of sales and though there was plenty of whale and fish oil to burn lamps were not extensively used in america for many years betty lamps shaped much like antique roman lamps were the earliest form they were small shallow receptacles two or three inches in diameter and about an inch in depth either rectangular oval round or triangular in shape with a projecting nose or spout an inch or two long they usually had a hook and chain by which they could be hung on a nail in the wall or on the round in the back of a chair sometimes there was also a smaller hook for cleaning out the nose of the lamp they were filled with tallow grease or oil while a piece of cotton rag or coarse wick was so placed that when lighted the end hung out on the nose from this wick dripping dirty grease rose a dull smoky ill-smelling flame phoebe lamps were similar in shape though some had double wicks that is a nose at either side three betty lamps are shown in the illustration all come from old colonial houses the iron lamp solid with the accumulated grease of centuries was found in a virginia cabin the rectangular brass lamp came from a dutch farmhouse and the graceful oval brass lamp came from a new england homestead pewter was a favorite material for lamps as it was for all other domestic utensils it was specially in favor for the lamps for whale oil and the porters fluid that preceded our present illumination medium petroleum a rare form is the pewter lamp here shown it is in the collection of ancient lamps lanterns candlesticks etc owned by mrs samuel bone duria of brooklyn it came from a salem home where it was used as a house lantern with its clear bull's-eye of unusually pure glass it gave what was truly a brilliant light for the century of its use a group of old pewter lamps of the shapes commonly used in the homes of our ancestors a century ago is also given chosen not because they were unusual or beautiful but because they were universal in their use the lamps of count rumford's invention were doubtless a great luxury with their clear steady light but they were too costly to be commonly seen in our grandfather's homes nor were argand burners ever universal glass lamps of many simple shapes shared popularity for a long time with the pewter lamps and as pewter gradually disappeared from household use these glass lamps monopolized the field they were rarely of cut or colored glass but were pressed glass of commonplace form and quality a group of them is here given which were all used in old new england houses in the early part of this century for many years the methods of striking a light were very primitive just as they were in europe many families possessed no adequate means or imperfect ones if by ill fortune the fire in the fireplace came wholly extinguished through carelessness at night someone usually a small boy, was sent to the house of the nearest neighbor bearing a shovel or covered pan, or perhaps a broad strip of green bark, on which to bring back coals for relighting the fire. Nearly all families had some form of flint and steel, a method of obtaining fire which has been used from time immemorial by both civilized and uncivilized nations this always required a flint a steel and a tinder of some vegetable matter to catch the spark struck by the concussion of flint and steel this spark was then blown into a flame among the colonists scorched linen was a favorite tinder to catch the spark of fire and till this century all the old cambric handkerchiefs linen underwear and worn sheets of a household were carefully saved for this purpose the flint steel and tinder were usually kept together in a circular tinder box such as is shown in the accompanying illustration it was a shape universal in england and america this had an inner flat cover with a ring a flint a horseshoe shaped steel and an upper lid with a place to set a candle-end in to carry the newly acquired light though i tried hundreds of times with this tinder-box i have never yet succeeded in striking a light the sparks fly but then the operation ceases in modern hands charles dickens said if you had good luck you could get a light in half an hour soon there was an improvement on this tinder-box by which sparks were obtained by spinning a steel wheel with a piece of cord somewhat like spinning a humming-top and making the wheel strike a flint fixed in the side of a little trough full of tinder this was an infinite advance in convenience on tinder-box number one this box was called in the south a mill one is here shown then some person invented strips of wood dipped in sulphur and called spunks these readily caught fire and retained it and were handy to carry light to a candle or pile of chips another way of starting a fire was by flashing a little powder in the pan of an old-fashioned gun sometimes this fired a twist of tau which in turn started a heap of shavings down to the time of our grandfathers and in some country homes of our fathers lights were started with these crude elements flint steel tinder and transferred by the sulphur splint for fifty years ago matches were neither cheap nor common though various processes for lighting in which sulphur was used in a match shape were brought before the public at the beginning of this century they were complicated expensive and rarely seen the first practical friction matches were congreaves made in england in 1827 they were thin strips of wood or cardboard coated with sulphur and tipped with a mixture of mucilage chlorate of potash and sulphide of antimony eighty-four of them were sold in a box for twenty-five cents with a piece of glass paper through which the match could be drawn there has been a long step this last fifty years between the tinder-box used so patiently for two centuries and the john jacks long match-making machine of our times which turns out seventeen million matches a day end of chapter two